Welcome to Tiger Sports Report Live. Up next in our Why I Coach series is Memphis Special Teams Coordinator and Assistant Head Coach Pete Limbo. Brian, good morning. Morning. How you doing, Coach? Good. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Uh, you know, I'm, I just want to thank you for uh, taking uh, some uh, couple minutes here to uh, talk to us. Uh, yeah, I'm doing an article on... Uh, you know why, coach? So we'll go over you know your history, what what makes you tick, and things like that. Sure. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. You know, this is a important time for everybody to stay positive, and uh, you know, uh, you know, all the Tiger fans out there that uh, love your stuff anyway. You know, I'm sure they're just putting the extra time into reading it all. So appreciate what you're trying to do. Ah, no, no problem. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's go back to uh, your playing days. Uh, you mean your high school? Uh, you played in uh, what uh, Staten Island area, correct? Sure. Yeah. So, like a lot of kids uh, growing up, I was a multi-sport guy: football, baseball, basketball. But there was always something different about football for me. The uh, the people, the process, the, the organization, the complexity. Uh, the attention to detail, the, the preparation, the competition, it just more so than those other sports. It just seemed like the, the perfect fit for me. And so um, as I got into high school and uh, played at a competitive uh, Catholic school program, um, I, I focused all my efforts on football. Nice. Um, and then from there, you go on to uh, Georgetown. And at the time, they were, uh, what, D3 at the time? Yeah, so... <laughs> I was one of those guys that embraced being an offensive lineman from an early age. Uh, I started playing center when I was 13 and did that throughout high school and college and was really fortunate uh, because Georgetown uh, was a national university, but it was playing Division three football. And as a 5'10", 200-pound center back then, there, there weren't many opportunities for me outside of Division three, unless uh, maybe maybe going to an Ivy or Patriot League school as a, as a long snapper if I could ever get in uh, academically. But um, So for me, I was looking at uh, Division three programs that were uh, strong academically, and, and uh, you know, when I got the opportunity to go to a place like Georgetown, it was a no-brainer. Now, I think, uh, if memory serves me correctly, they had uh, some pretty good basketball teams while you were there. Did you ever uh, get a chance to go to any of the basketball games to uh, watch them play? Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right. It was uh, I was the same class as Alonzo Mourning, so my claim to fame was that I was the other center on campus, <laughs> uh, which, which uh, some people laugh at and some don't think is that funny, but Alonzo was... Uh, literally about a foot taller than me um, and it was a really interesting dynamic because you had you know an absolute national powerhouse in basketball and, and everything that went along with that living side by side with a division three football program that you know would have been similar to what you have at Rhodes College so it was it was a really interesting dynamic and uh, meeting you know seeing John Thompson every day you know a legend in, in college basketball and, and getting your ankles taped next to Alonzo Mourning in the training room uh, you know those are, are uh, great memories um, and just going to school in Washington DC and everything that that offered uh, to, to grow and develop um, was a, was also a, a, a neat experience. Georgetown was a place that drew students from all 50 states. So, for example, the first day I'm there, Jerry Jones Jr. is in the locker next to me uh, getting his 
Oh, neat. At, at Georgetown. So you know, it was it was a daily a daily uh, event to to meet people like that and to go to class with people like that from all over the country, all over the world. And for a blue collar kid from Staten Island who was the son of a police officer, you know, it was uh, quite an experience. Now, uh, at what point did you uh, want to become a coach, or did you always want to become a coach? When did that, uh, you know, you know, feelings come up for you? Yeah, I, I would say I started thinking about the idea well before college, and uh, while at Georgetown, you know, most of my buddies ended up going to law school or to Wall Street, and I was just uh, overcome with this feeling that. If I could stay connected to the game that I was so passionate about, um, stay connected with uh, uh, college campuses. You know, I just I love the whole environment of mm -hmm. football on a college campus and and what it brought to uh, the university setting. And and I felt like if I could help young people have a great experience and build a better future for themselves through being a coach that that would be a, a really really fulfilling career so but it was hard because you had a lot of guys uh that i went to school with at that time coming out of school in the early 90s that were going to to wall street or you know the dot-com industry was, <laughs> yeah. was blowing up back then and uh you know you're basically taking a vow of poverty in your 20s to to try to get into coaching um so it was definitely a, a, a tough decision to make but uh but i knew i was doing the right thing and i knew i was following my passion nice and you you get a, a chance to go to albany as a graduate assistant for a couple of years now you know what was it like back then to be a graduate assistant i mean is it somewhat comparable to what you see nowadays uh, very different so the ncaa the year i graduated from college the ncaa cut Division one grad assistants from five to two. Oh wow! So the market was flooded with grad assistant type guys, young guys that wanted to get into coaching. There were far more out there than uh, there were jobs. So I was fortunate to to get a grad assistant job at Albany at the time, which was was Division three, and the head coach there, a guy named Bob Ford, who's a bit of a legend in the Northeast. <laughs> He had a program where he had multiple grad assistants every year, gave them a lot of full-time responsibilities and sort of groomed them to go on to bigger and better things. And, and it was out of necessity because he only had two full-time assistants. So he relied on, on a pack of grad assistants to uh, have a lot of responsibility. So even though I was a first and second year coach, uh, I got a chance to coach the offensive line. Uh, I got a chance to go on the road recruiting. I got a chance to have some uh, collateral duties for Coach Ford, um, whether they be uh, team travel or fundraising, things like that, that uh, a lot of coaches might not get a chance to to do until they were much later in their career. So, um, so I was thrown into the fire, but I was trained by a, a very – a great mentor, and that prepared me uh, a lot, especially the fact that, uh, you know, I, I became a head coach uh, at age 31. Yes. So, you know, those those experiences I had in my 20s, although although uh, 
they were all at Division three or FCS schools. Uh, the people I was around and the, the responsibilities that I had prepared me uh, for, for the opportunity that I got when I was only 31. Yeah, and, and at that time you were what, one of the youngest uh, head coaches in all of Division One. So talk about that. I mean, you, you were at Lehigh at the time as a was a, a assistant head coach, you were you, recruiting coordinator and offensive line coach. You know, how'd that come about to where all of a sudden now you're you're, uh, you're the head coach? Yeah, so it was. I would say for Tiger fans, it was very similar to uh, Ryan Silverfield's experience here at Memphis. Very similar. Uh, in fact, the parallels are uncanny uh, so I was uh, coaching the offensive line which I think is a is a great uh, experience in and of itself because of the, the level of detail and the, uh, the group that you get to work with um, uh, as the recruiting coordinator I had been involved in not only recruiting a lot of the kids at Lehigh but dealing with a lot of people on campus in admissions and financial aid and the faculty uh, setting up recruiting weekends so that helped me build a lot of relationships and then uh, my head coach Kevin Higgins who was another great mentor when he made me assistant head coach he, he really gave me a lot of responsibilities uh, whether they be with the, the budget or dealing with the media or dealing with alumni that uh, really prepared me to eventually take over for him, and you had uh, immediate success. Uh, I think you guys went to the uh, the playoffs the, the first year. Uh, just talk about uh, you know that that first year. Uh, you guys went eleven and one. Was it uh, already set up for uh, for you to have success? What was you know what was that transition like for you to have immediate success? Sure. Well, we, we actually graduated uh, thirteen or fourteen all conference players mm-hmm. from the year before. We were. Uh, uh, a very senior-laden team in 2000, so uh, we, we weren't sure that we were going to have as great of a year as we did in, in 01. I would say the biggest thing, and this would be my advice to to any uh, coach who gets promoted from within uh, in a successful program or takes over a successful program, I think the best thing we did was we tweaked things, but we didn't fix what wasn't broken. Mm-hmm. So, so we because I was there, you know, I, I knew there were some little things we could do uh, to maybe make it uh, a, a little bit uh, different or a little bit better experience for for the kids. But the 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 macro part, the you know the the big pieces of the program uh, were in place and and very good. Uh, we had two very good coordinators. We had uh, great kids in the program. We had um, good support uh, on campus and, and from our alumni. So it wasn't like we needed to make some, some uh, huge changes to what we were doing uh, philosophically or schematically. So we tried to tweak things to, to put to put our own stamp on it, but but uh, we were humble enough to know that we didn't have to make any radical changes. And I think the the continuity and the stability was what allowed us to be successful for the next five years. Nice. Right, so and then uh, you get the call to uh, to go to Elon. 
Uh, was that a hard decision? Because uh, you were having, uh, you know, such great success at uh, Lehigh. What was that uh, mindset like to go from Lehigh to Elon? Yeah, there were there were some real strong reasons why I made that move, and one was that I had proven to myself that I could maintain a successful program. I really wanted to prove to myself that I could go to a place that was struggling and try to rebuild it and and take what we had done at Lehigh and try to apply it somewhere else and of course adjusted based on on you know the uniqueness uh, of Elon's situation but but uh, Elon at the time had joined the Southern Conference a few years earlier and had really struggled at that time the conference was Appalachian State and Georgia Southern, Furman, Wofford, uh, some, some really strong, traditionally successful FCS programs. And uh, Elon, of course, was a private school with strong academic standards, um, but it did have scholarships. And at the time, at Lehigh, we were still all financial aid. And so that made it uh, very challenging with, um, you know, the high academic standards and the fact that it was financial aid. So at least we knew going to Elon that we would have the opportunity to, to offer scholarships. And so that was something that really excited me in terms of uh, growing uh, as a coach. And, and uh, our Elon experience was nothing short of awesome. Uh, had uh, a great president that I got to work with there. Uh, named Leo Lambert, and uh, it was a small community, but uh, it was a community that really was hungry for football success, and uh, a school with rising academic uh, reputation, and uh, it just felt like we were the, the perfect fit there at the time we were there. And then uh, another jump, you go to Ball State, uh, and, you know, immediate improvement uh, there as well. You took them from 4-8 and eight to Six and six, and then and then beyond. Uh, what was that jump like? Yeah, I'm proud of what we did at Ball State. You know, it's a it's a place that you know historically has never been able to uh, have great success or maintain success over periods of time. And I'm really proud of what we were able to accomplish there under the circumstances. You know, some some really memorable years and some some great people that uh, that we got a chance to, to work with there, um, and particularly the 2012 and 2013 seasons where we uh, broke a lot of school records and, and uh, had some huge wins over mm-hmm. Power 5 teams and, uh, you know, some some uh, some great memories there from, from our time in Muncie. Uh, I would say the biggest challenge there was the fact that I had three athletic directors in five years and also uh, had I stayed I would have been uh, going on my third president at the time oh wow um, and so so you know it was a it was a very challenging situation in that regard um, and also uh, you have a little bit of success and and you lose uh, a lot of coaches a lot of assistant coaches to bigger and better things uh, but mm-hmm. overall you know, we're very proud of, of what we accomplished there and, uh, you know, having a, a winning record there and, and having some great memorable uh, seasons that uh, are 
among the best in school history there uh, is something that all of us that were there at that time are, are very proud of. Um, when I got the call to go to Maryland, um, it, was, it was a very tough decision to leave, but the D.C. area was one that, uh, that my family and I were very familiar with from our time at Georgetown. We had uh, a lot of family living in that area, uh, a lot of friends that uh, lived and worked in that area. And I had never coached in the Power Five before. And this was a chance to be a, a special teams coordinator in the Big Ten. And uh, I felt like, okay, this is something you haven't had a chance to do in your career, a chance to, to prove yourself in a different way. And so as a competitor, uh, you know, we, we, we took on that challenge. And, uh, and it was a... You know, each of these experiences that that you have mm-hmm. um, have been have been uh, unique and special, and um, you know have allowed you to, to get better. Uh, and sometimes through adversity, you know, Maryland uh, had a lot of challenges and uh, and some tough times there. Uh, but you know, I, going back and being an assistant coach again after. 15 years as a head coach, uh, it really allowed me to almost go back and get a PhD in coaching uh, because for the first time in a long time, you know, I was doing a lot more hands-on coaching, doing the special teams and, and doing the tight ends again. And then uh, you went to Rice and then uh, Memphis. When you got that call from Memphis, what, what made you make the jump to go to Memphis? Yeah, so... Um, you know, leaving Maryland, I'll just say that, you know, I was fortunate to to get a chance to go to Rice um, because, you know, we, we were going through a tough time at, at, at Maryland, and Rice sort of gave me a chance to, to just take a deep breath um, and be around some, some really good people. Uh, and we did some really cool things on special teams there that, uh, that um, were really – uh, exciting and, and fulfilling, and, and I think helped help that uh, program. Uh, hopefully, will help it into the future. But um, when when Coach Norvell called me about the opportunity at Memphis, uh, first of all, I would say that uh, I was familiar with the program and familiar with the city. Uh, my wife and I had uh, come and visited the city a couple times. And, uh, you know, we liked, liked the dynamic here. We liked the location. We liked uh, the size of the city. Uh, we knew that there would be some, some really good places to live and, and put our kids in school. Uh, and uh, because my family was still in Maryland, uh, it was going to be a much easier move than, than going all the way to Houston, uh, for sure. Um, and then... Uh, you know the fact that uh, that Mike Norvell and I really hit it off as we got to know each other. Uh, we had some mutual friends that had been trying to connect us for some time anyway, and and um, when when we finally did connect, uh, there was just this uh, real ease uh, because our philosophy and our values and and what we believed in in terms of developing student-athletes and uh, and how to run a program were very much in alignment. Um, and 
so uh, when when he called and, and offered me the job, uh, it was really a no-brainer to come here. And you took a, a special teams unit <clears throat> from the ESPN efficiency rankings from 59th to 2nd in, in one year. Um, what was the, you know, was the, just like before, was the pieces in place? Did you just have to tweak little things? What was uh, the, you know, the major reason for such a, uh, an increase? Well, first of all, uh, I will say I've got to give, give credit where it's due. There was already a, a good culture in place and an emphasis um, going back to uh, when Coach Fuente was here and then obviously with uh, Coach Norvell taking over. Uh, the good news was that um, there was already an emphasis being put on it. Um, and so I, I knew, that, you know, again, going back to the, the Lehigh situation of, of don't fix what ain't broken, at least the good news was that the commitment, the mindset that special teams was important was already in place. And then from there, uh, really what we focus on first and foremost is what I call don't beat yourself. And uh, more games are, are lost. Uh, you know, if, if you study history and, and you study, you know, wars and battles, you know, more, more of those are lost because of foolish decisions than they are won because of, of brilliant decisions. And so when we approach special teams, the first thing we want to do is make sure that we are fundamentally sound and we are taking care of the football uh, we are getting possession back to the offense um, th those are things that we we focus on every day and so uh, for example if you look at our kickoff coverage last year we only allowed one return past the 30 yard line well that says a lot about how the kids understood the concepts of the coverage uh, and, that, and that we didn't allow any explosive returns against us. Uh, the flip side is, you know, we had 10 kickoff returns that crossed the 40-yard line. Uh, so, uh, and we were actually number one in the country in average starting field position after a kickoff return mm -hmm. uh, the, past the 33-yard line. So we're not giving up any big plays, and we're creating big plays on our own return units. And, and that's that's really the second part of it. Now, when you think about what wins football games, all right, if you take care of the football and then you create explosive plays and you don't give up explosive plays, you give yourself a great chance to win. And so those are things that we, we focus on every day um, in sort of a, a, a big picture um, approach so something as simple as making sure that we're catching balls um, and, and not only the returners catching balls but up backs and, and guys that, that might uh, only get a, a, a ball kicked to them in a critical situation uh, in some unusual way are those guys prepared to react the right way and, and handle that situation correctly those are things that could could uh, win a game for you um, so so we want to make sure we're we're really prepared and sound in that regard um, and then the, the other thing I would say that a lot of people may not think about 
uh, you know, they see a kickoff return for a touchdown or they see a fake punt get executed or something like that. And that's, that's all wonderful. Uh, but there's a lot of other little scenarios that occur over the course of the game, and we call it hidden yards. And, and these are uh, the things that win or lose games for you that don't make the newspaper or don't get talked about on ESPN. Uh, an example, uh, you have a kickoff return out to the 35-yard line, but there's holding penalty on the 20, and that drive starts now on the 10th. Okay, well, you just lost 25 yards, yep. hidden yards right there. So we chart that and we monitor that very closely. We talk about that a lot with our players. Um, and and if, if a guy can be trusted to make good decisions, even if it's just in his role blocking somebody on a return, then he's going to play. Um, and, and, and all of the guys in the room understand how these hidden yards impact the outcome of the game. So last year, Brian, we were plus 794 in hidden yards. So almost eight football fields. Um, So you think about that, all right? Uh, That's that's 80 first downs, right? Or 79.4 first downs, right? That's, That's almost eight football fields in length. And so what are those things? It's, it's when you feel the punt instead of letting it hit the ground, even if it's a fair catch. And if that punt hits the ground and rolls 12 more yards, well, you just lost 12 yards of hidden yards. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, uh, when, we, when we return a kickoff to the 34-yard line that we could have fair caught and started at the 25, well, that's plus nine yards right there. So there's all these little uh, scenarios within the game that a lot of people don't really think about, but we think about it a lot. And and we look at what the cumulative effects of that are in terms of impact and the outcome of the game. And so um, when when you're plus uh, 794 yards of hidden yards over the course of a season, what that says is that your players are buying into – making good decisions, uh, they're buying into uh, the plan, and they're also playing with great effort, but they're playing smart. And, and that's, uh, that's really, really important to our overall program. Uh, and, and the last thing I'll say to you is, my job is more about developing these players in a holistic way than it is about uh, a kickoff return or or a punt um, and covering that punt. Um, if you know what we do on special teams in terms of training the players, we are training them every day in the fundamentals of the game that will allow them to become better players on offense and defense. And when a player buys into and understands the fact that the drills I'm doing with him, and the concepts that we're teaching are very much the same as a lot of things they're doing on offense and defense. And if they work hard at those things and become the best they can be at those things, it's going to carry over to what they're doing at receiver or linebacker or running back. It's like an epiphany. Take a player like Antonio Gibson, who 
you know, worked extremely hard in practice, uh, both as a as an offensive player and as a special teams player, and you see it come come together. You, you watch him release on a route, and the technique that he uses to release on a route and get open is no different than the technique that we teach him to cover a kickoff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's identical. Um, and so you see him embrace the work at practice in a kickoff drill, even though he may not have actually covered a kickoff in a game. The fact that he was still involved in those drills so often in practice, and then you see him have success as a receiver using the same skills, it's, it's very rewarding as a coach. And I was going to ask about him uh, now that he's, you know, preparing for the NFL draft. What what type of player do you see in him that uh, will translate success in the NFL? Well, the versatility is what uh, jumps off the page at me. If if you're a general manager or a head coach or a coordinator in the NFL, and you see a guy that will have a chance to play multiple positions on offense for you. Um, allow you to to do a lot of things uh, offensively with him on the field in different places, and then the fact that he could potentially be a three or four unit special teams guy um, when you have such a limited number of spots on your roster, a guy like that that can bring all that versatility to the table. And you know he's going to be a low-maintenance, hard-working, coachable, intelligent player. Um, you know, that's, that's a guy that uh, if I was in that position, I would be very, very intrigued by what uh, Antonio Gibson would, would bring to the table. And, and with him gone, um, and this, uh, you know, the coronavirus, you know, canceling the, the, the spring practice, how much does that hinder you to try to find the next Antonio Gibson that's already on the roster? Well, you have to control what you can control. And what I've been doing over the last few weeks is communicating a lot with our players, giving them, uh, uh, sending out a lot of uh, videos to them uh, so that they can. Uh, with the extra time on their hands, really uh, delve into uh, the basics of our special teams and, and what we do and why we do it. You know, the one thing our kids are very comfortable and familiar with is is technology and, mm-hmm. and watching videos. And, and so uh, you have to find a way to continue to get better under the circumstances. And so... Um, you know, I've been producing a lot of uh, clinic-style videos that you might do uh, in the off-season uh, in person with high school coaches, let's say. Like, I spoke at the Glazier Clinic uh, in Nashville uh, a few weeks before uh, the virus hit and everything shut down. Uh, so what I've been doing is is uh, putting together, a, you know, a series of, of uh, video cut-ups and, and clinics for our guys so that, you know, while they are home and training on their own, you know, they can continue to learn and stay sharp about what we do and how we do it. And when things do get back to normal and you guys have practice again, who's a couple of players that we can possibly see take over Gibson's role as a kick returner and 
Yeah, well, Pop Williams should be back, right? Well, sure, and, and that's, uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, you know, uh, Pop getting injured in the third game last year, uh, you know, obviously was a blow to our punt return, um, so we're excited to, to have him back. Um, and, and get him uh, back to, to full strength, you know, coming off his his knee surgery. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about uh, what what he'll bring to to the table as a punt returner. Um, as you look to to kick returner, uh, we've got a lot of options, um, and and obviously uh, Kenny Gainwell is is one of them, uh, who was well proven last year as a, as a running back. Uh, and a slot receiver, um, you know, Kenny's a guy that constantly trains back there. Uh, Gabe Rogers had a kickoff return for a touchdown against Navy before we redshirted him. So obviously he's shown that, that he's got uh, some speed, um, and he's a guy that needs to, to continue to grow and develop. Uh, one of the guys I'm most proud of from last season uh, was Calvin Austin, and his trajectory as a player overall on offense and special teams uh, was pretty remarkable over the course of the season. So he's definitely a, a trusted guy and another guy who you know, has, has really good speed that, that could be a potential kick returner for us. And I'll, I'll switch it over to uh, recruiting. And since you've been a, a, you know, a head coach, You've gone from no technology out there in recruiting with uh, kids to all of a sudden now there's Twitter, Facebook, and everything else. How has uh, you know recruiting changed for you? You know, is the biggest thing the, the technology? Well, it's certainly been a huge driving force in the changes. Um, when, I, when I got into coaching, uh, you know, it was the transition from VHS tapes to then DVDs. Uh, and then now, of course, it's, uh, you know, everything is, is digital, right? And, yeah. uh, and, you know, you can't uh, turn your phone on in the morning without, um, you know, getting stuff sent to you via Twitter or, or videos sent via text message. And uh, during this time, when we're unable to get out on the road like we normally would, uh, in in late April and in May, um, you know you're you're really relying on watching more video from from kids. Uh, and now, of course, because of social distancing, they're in many cases doing a lot of these workouts on their own. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, you know we are planning to to recruit a kicker uh, in this next class, and so I've been watching. Uh, you know, watching a lot of, of kickers, but of course I have my own recruiting areas too. Mm-hmm. So I'm always watching videos from guys uh, in, in my recruiting areas and, and passing those on to the appropriate position coaches. And like when you, you and I grew up, you know, we played multiple sports. Um, a, a lot of times now, you know, kids are focusing on one sport. Do you like it when uh, kids, you know, play multiple sports, or is it, you know, better uh, to, to focus on one sport? What's your opinion on that? I'm a bit of a traditionalist, and and I do like to hear when a guy has played multiple sports because I think it, it develops young athletes 
uh, in a well-rounded way, and it puts them in some great competitive situations when when they have to be at the at the free throw line and 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 hit a couple clutch free throws, or or they have to be uh, up at the plate with uh, you know with with two outs and uh, you know need to get a hit or or whatever the case may be. I think the more of those situations that uh, that a young athlete is in, you know, the better it makes them uh, down the road when they want to play football at this level. But I also understand that based on the size of a school and based on the location of a school, uh, that that may not be possible. You know, if you're yeah. if you're a football player in high school in Texas, it's almost impossible to be a multi-sport athlete the way the way it's structured it, with uh, with a lot of bigger high schools and uh, you have uh, you know uh, activity classes that are focused on on having you know the entire football team there and so forth so it really isn't logistically possible at some places to do it and still be successful but if you're at a small school somewhere and uh, and you are one of the better athletes at that school, and you have a chance to make your high school a better place because you're playing two or three sports. Uh, you know, you only get a chance to 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 do things one time in life. You know, and and for a, for a young man who's got the opportunity and the ability uh, to be a multiple sport athlete and contribute to the spirit and success of their high school. Uh, in multiple ways, I, I think it's a shame not to. And uh, talk about, uh, you know, being a coach and also, you know, being a family head, having a family. How do you balance uh, the two to make sure your family has time uh, with you in it and make sure that, you know, they know that you love them and things like that? How do you balance work and personal life? Well, this is more of a lifestyle than it is a job. And so you need that uh, support and understanding from your family that it, it's not going to be a traditional schedule with dad leaving the house at the same time every morning and, and getting home for dinner every night. So you, you really need to have everybody on board, um, starting with your, with your wife, to, to understand and, and to, to buy into that. But from there, I would say that the experiences that you have as a family uh, growing up around all these college campuses and in these different communities make it well worth it. You know, we've enjoyed everywhere we've lived, and we certainly love Memphis. Uh, we, we love the relationship between the university and the city at Memphis. Um, you know, we, we love living over here in Germantown and the community here. Um, and, you know, the opportunities that our kids have gotten to grow up uh, around these universities and you know the exposure to education uh, the exposure to uh, all the great people involved in these football programs and and connected to these football programs makes the sacrifices well worth it and what's the best thing about being a coach uh, definitely the relationships you know a day doesn't go by when you don't hear from or reach out to somebody that you played with or coached with or had a chance to coach and to see 
how they're doing and how football has helped them be successful, how it's helped them be a better uh, husband or father or employee, um, you know, how they're contributing to their communities. Um, and, and not just the, the, the people that you coached, but the people that were involved with the programs at all these different schools. I'll give you one example. We had two uh, families, uh, dear friends, that we were very close with at Ball State. And they came down, uh, they had planned six months in advance to come down to be at our SMU game last year. And uh, it just so happened that that was college game day and, uh, and a game on national TV mm-hmm. between two top 20 ranked teams. Uh, and the fact that those two families were here in Memphis for that weekend, and those were two people that were a big part of our experience in Muncie, Indiana, but they also got to share in uh, what was a uh, historical time, a historical weekend for Memphis football. Yeah. Um, and so a great example of those lifelong relationships that are, are made through your involvement with, with the game of football. And you seem very happy here at Memphis. But uh, in the future, if a school comes calling, would you uh, would you have that itch to be a head coach again? Uh, absolutely, and and uh, you know I'm I'm certainly not one to brag about uh, jobs and those kinds of things. But uh, you know, it's it, there were there were a couple schools that reached out and uh, inquired about potential interest this winter, and that was very flattering. But uh, we're, we're very happy here. It's been. Uh, uh, just a, a great experience here so far. We, we love the people. We love the community. Uh, work with a great bunch of guys. Uh, excited about uh, the continuity with uh, Ryan taking over as head coach and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the staff staying intact and some of the new coaches we brought in are really good guys that I think are going to be a really good fit at Memphis. Uh, so we're really excited about the future here, and uh, sure, if, if at some point, at the right place, at the right time, uh, the chance to go back and be a head coach again, um, I would certainly, uh, uh, I'd be lying to tell you if, if, if that didn't intrigue me, um, but I feel like uh, there's, uh, this is a great place, not a good place, but a great place, and uh a place I enjoy uh, working every day, and, and my family enjoys living here. Um, so, you know, we want to just continue to to be all in here at Memphis and try to make this as good as we can make it. That was Memphis special teams coordinator and assistant head coach Pete Limbo, and we certainly do thank him for his time. Please visit TigerSportsReport.com for all the latest on your Memphis Tigers.